Amen. Please be seated. And please, once again, as we continue through the first book of the Bible, Genesis, turn to Genesis 20. I, for one, am very happy to say turn to Genesis 20. Let's get out of chapter 19 as soon as possible, especially Lot. Lot's a depressing character. We all can relate with uh, aspects of his life, but that picture of compromise with the world, it certainly leaves you with a bit of a sour taste when you consider what happened in that tragic life. Thankfully, we get to move back to the father of many nations. We get to go to Abraham again. Uh, we'll be encouraged there, right? The one called from the Ur of the Chaldeans to be God's chosen one to begin the nation of Israel. Abraham, the one who God appeared to several times in his life. 25 years in now we are to this man's many, 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 many spiritual lessons learned. Uh, while younger in the faith, he witnessed God's deliverance. Uh, he is the one of whom it is said, he believed God and it was counted to him, credited to him, imputed to him as righteousness. That Abram, finally away from Lot, back to Abraham, the father of us all. Hear now God's holy word. Genesis 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man, because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she's indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, 
and God healed Abimelech. It also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord, the ups and the downs of Abraham's life are all too familiar if we are honest. Lord, we relate with this man's ups and downs. Lord, we need the conviction of your spirit as we read your inspired word this morning. We need your spirit's guidance to both understand what we are reading and how to apply it in our lives. Please, O Lord, bless the preaching of your word by giving us hearts that can receive it and apply it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Yes, indeed, we switch back to Abraham, the father of us all. And we have to admit that Abraham is indeed, as so many have said before, a picture, a prototype of the Christian. I know we think of the great things that Abraham has done when we get to Hebrews 11 or we talk about him in general, but we've been in Genesis together. And we recognize why that has been said of him because of the great inconsistency of his faith. Absolutely a believer. He believes God. He believed God in Genesis 15. It was counted to him as righteousness. We have seen the fruit of faith in his life. But we have also seen that faith go down, go up, go down, go up. And who here cannot appreciate that sense of things? We believe on Christ. We know our eternity is secure. Yet we struggle with the basics of every day, the practical realities, to trust him fully and obey him wholly. We see it in the so-called father of us all, Abraham. The one who watched God double, triple, probably quadruple his possessions and his wealth, even though he was a nomad traveling around. The one who bravely took 318 of his militia, personally trained militia, went and rescued his nephew Lot from some warlord northern kings at great cost, great risk of life and limb, that Abraham we're looking at here. The one who was personally blessed by Melchizedek, that priest of the Most High God, that Christ-like figure, Abraham, the one who stood before the Most High God to plea for Sodom with boldness in his throne room of grace. Abraham, the one who's now been walking with God for 25 years. This is no longer novice Abram. This is Abraham with 25 years of experience and lessons. Abraham, the one who'd be the father of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the greater father of David, and of course, ultimately, the great ancestor of the Lord Jesus himself, the seed of the woman who was forecasted to save us all in Genesis 3. Yes, Abraham, the father of all who believe, or as Paul says, the father of us all. If there was ever a man who could be secure in his eternal place, you would think it would be Abraham. Yet we come to verse 1 and verse 2. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, that's far south of Israel, and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Wait, have we not read this story before? Didn't this just happen some 25 years prior 
when Abraham fled the promised land because of famine, went to Pharaoh, and he did the exact same thing. Isn't this the same story? Isn't this the story of my life, your life? We're saved. We know God loves us. We trust in him. We believe in him for so many big things. Our life is shaped by so many of the things we know are true because God says it. But yet in these moments, we sin. We choose sin over trusting God and his promises. We believe God's promise of eternal life through Christ, but we lie to those around us. We trust God's promise of heaven, but we fear the report that the doctor may give. We believe God when he says he'll provide for all of our needs, but we're losing sleep right now about our 401k. Abraham, as a model believer, serves to prove the faithfulness of God. Even your unfaithfulness that can get you down, and it should to some degree, it is an opportunity afresh for God to prove his faithfulness, and that's what he does in this episode. This episode is a continuation of the story of our unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. There's no outline as such. It's just the interweaving in this story of our unfaithfulness exemplified by Abraham. We all relate. And God's faithfulness, despite what Abraham does in this moment. Back to the the text, and let's see how this unfolds. We see Abraham makes a decision, we don't know why, to leave the northern area, not far from where Sodom and Gomorrah were, at least in distant sight. Maybe it's because of that episode and that memory of it all. He decides to move. He has freedom to go anywhere he wants in the promised land, so he moves to the south, just as the text says in verse 1, down towards Gerar. In verse 2, as he's getting there, he says to his wife Sarah, or says to Abimelech the king, Sarah is my sister. Now, understand the way Canaan was configured. Canaan is the land of Palestine, Israel, as it would become. And there were chieftains, nomadic chieftains, that moved around, much like Abraham had a huge uh, household with him, hundreds and hundreds of people under his care, livestock and such. There were bigger such chieftains that occupied those places. And Abimelech is one such king, local king. Abimelech may be his personal name, the friend, the king, it could, or friend of God, the friend, the king, could be, that's a title like Pharaoh. We'll meet him again, and we'll meet this title again. But he is there occupying the region that now Abram, Abraham is going to. Now keep in mind also, this story is condensed. It would have taken some weeks and months probably to unfold as it does, because Abimelech would get word that somebody's come into the territory. Abraham would start telling people who he is. It would take some time for it to happen. This is a bit of a condensed story to show us what happened. Abraham says of his wife, Sarah, this is his speaking point. This is his introduction. She's my sister. He knows the custom of the day would to, be give, to give up one of your harem to whoever was the, the area chieftain. There was a, a bit of a, a tribute involved there. In his lack of faith about God keeping him alive, sustaining him, pushes him towards this kind of action, this kind of lie, this kind of misleading. Now, this is the same Abraham who had been led through so many things now since that episode back with Pharaoh in Egypt. He seemed to have gone through all sorts of faith-building events. The one who's the promised one now in an ultimate sense. 
just been promised that the child of promise will be there within the year. And of course, you would think that he would be strong in the Lord and go anywhere he pleases knowing that God is with him. He's seen all that God has done. But instead he lies once again about Sarah, convinced that she will lead to his death if he tells anyone that they're married. Verse 2, And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now you might say at the beginning, with all due respect to beautiful Sarah, and she was no doubt beautiful, she was 90 at this point. Now what is the reason for this taking of her? Well, it's more than just a beauty thing. It's more than just uh, someone uh, being sensual in their approach like you might expect this pagan king to do. This is to do with the symbolism of who's the boss of the area. If you come into this region, you're going to have to give me a symbol of your being submissive to me. And if this is your sister, and she's so high-ranking, and obviously so, it would be obvious just by what she wore and what she looked like, I will take her just to remind you of who runs all of this. And so he takes Sarah for himself in this way. Now, when this occurs, that first night, Abimelech goes to sleep. And God, intriguingly, speaks to this pagan king in a dream. This is an, uh, one of the most interesting interchanges in the whole of the Bible that we have happened here. Look with me at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken. That, that's not a dream. That's a nightmare by anybody's definition. For she is a man's wife. Now, I want you to notice something, that this story will quickly demonstrate our unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness, God's graciousness. But there's a phrase at the beginning of verse 3 that is replete in Scripture, the concept and the actual wording. But God came to Abimelech. Abraham acted sinfully, again, in a way that could plunge Abimelech's whole household into death and cause all sorts of strains and struggles across the board for a lot of people. But God came to Abimelech in a dream. God was going to preserve this situation for his glory, even to the benefit of Abimelech, who was essentially an innocent party in this occurrence. But God, in verse 3, that phrase will come several more times in Scripture, and it's important for us to note at least a few of them. Later in the book of Genesis, chapter 50, we'll get there someday, Joseph, at the end of his life, or at the end of the, end of the book, he's talking to his brothers who had done so much evil to him over the course of the years. Despite all of this evil, listen to the way Joseph characterizes it. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's, an, it's a reassurance that the providential hand of God will always work in his favor and for his glory, which ultimately is for the good of his people, even when we're acting like Abraham is acting here. Later, King David pens under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But is used as an adversative to put a stop to what the flow of the, the occurrence is, 
but God's going to do something to redeem this or change this or rectify this. But God came to Abimelech in a dream. In Ephesians chapter 2, probably the most important occurrence of this phrase. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Sometimes the greatest, most gracious statements of God are the bluntest. You're a dead man if you keep doing this. This is a man's wife. And really, I think what unfolds is even more intriguing than the start of the discussion. This pagan ruler, Abimelech, has a conversation with God. The conversation reveals more honor on the part of Abimelech than on Abraham. It's a sad thing when unbelievers have better ethics than believers. Now Abimelech had not approached her, verse 4. He didn't touch her. It's important to remember that God's promise to Abraham and Sarah was for her to have a child their child. So God is bound by his oath to protect Sarah, even despite the boneheaded move on Abraham's part that Sarah was part of. There could be no confusion about who the father was, this promised child. Now look at the ethics of Abimelech. Now Abimelech, verse 4, had not approached her. So in this light, God telling him he's a dead man, this is a, a married woman, He says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? He acknowledges the Lord's speech to him. Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother? Abimelech says, in the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Now, it's interesting, the word integrity, this is the first time it appears in the scriptures. It's this... in the blamelessness of my heart, the uprightness of my heart. He's speaking as a a pagan Philistine now talking to the God of Abraham. The innocence of my hands. I haven't done it. My hands are clean. They're guiltless. I haven't done anything. What an interchange between God and Abimelech, and it only gets more interesting. God says in verse 6, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. Now, this this is a little bit of an insight in the providence of God. Even when we think we did something well, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. In a sense, we might say God's working against Abraham's lack of faith on the human level. Working against Abraham's lack of faith and faithlessness and disobedience, he's working against this to uphold his promise to bless Abraham. He's bound by his oath to Abraham, even when Abraham is showing unfaithfulness himself. And lest us 
fall into the judging Abraham. Thank God for that for all of us. Your unfaithfulness does not undo what he's committed to you through Christ. Now that should keep us more faithful when we know that, but we know it doesn't all the time. God keeps Sarah safe because she will bear the promised son. We're unfaithful, but God is faithful still. God's commitment to keep his promise to send a seed from the woman to crush the serpent's head drives his protection of Sarah at this moment. His commitment to save a people for himself and accomplish it through his son to whom he has given you, this is what keeps him faithful to you when you are not faithful to him or I am not faithful to him. What do you suppose goes through Abimelech's mind after he hears what God says in verse 7. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. Really? Is what Abraham's a prophet? He's a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. We know by the end of the passage that God has placed a curse, if you will, upon him and his house so they could not reproduce. The women could not have children. His household could not have children. Meaning that his house would die off. That, that's what's wrapped up in what he, God says. If you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. This is what he's referring to. So recognize who you're dealing with is a prophet. Now, a prophet, there's another time we get a first. Prophet, this is the first mention of one in the Bible. Applied to Abraham. In its most general sense, it means it's just someone that God places his hand upon to represent him or speak on his behalf, usually regarding a special occasion. It's not speaking to the person's intrinsic righteousness, but God chooses to speak through this vessel who's now a prophet. It's more a statement of what God's doing, and you recognize him doing it by honoring that person, even if they're not honorable. That's what's unfolding here a spokesman for God. He is my spokesman, Abimelech, and you need to go to him and to make this right, you ask him to pray for you and this will, this will stop the curse. This will put you in the right place with Abraham. Now, who cares about Abraham? Abraham's a jerk. That's what you might be thinking. This isn't about Abraham. This is about God's program. This is about what God's doing. This is God is preparing the way for his chosen people to take up residence. And there will be no occasion where you think to yourself, boy, they really deserve to be in this land. There will really be no occasion where you stop to think to yourself, boy, I really deserve to be God's child. This is the work of God for us. This is a gracious activity that God puts on display. So, of course, after hearing this, look at verse 8. Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants. You know what that means. He didn't sleep at all. He was waiting for the sun to come up so he can talk to the people who are just getting awake. He rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things. And of course, the men were very much afraid. They knew this was real. We start to see the purposes of God here. We'll see Abimelech again as the Genesis story unfolds. But when we see him again, there will be a friendliness towards the expansion of the people of God in Israel that's immediate and will mean something in the future generations for sure. So God is working all these things for that purpose. This introduction to Abraham, as poor as it is, does serve to alert the people of Canaan concerning the God of Abraham. This story will, will have its effect in the future when looked back upon. Verse 9, 
Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? This pagan king understands the sinfulness of violating marriage. Only in the most lost places do we have such confusion about this sacredness. Abimelech knows the sin that is committed by violating the marriage of Abraham and Sarah. Why would you bring this great sin upon by lying? You lie to us is what he's saying. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. He applies the word sin here to what he would have done if he would have continued following what Abraham said was true. Abimelech said to Abraham, verse 10, What did you see that you did this thing? Is there something that you looked upon us and thought, I'm going to bring this curse upon them? You could, you could sense Abimelech's being incensed. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, Abraham's right to guesstimate that if there's a place that doesn't honor the true and living God, doesn't believe in God, that they won't have any, any mitigating force that would stop them from acting out on their worst inward sinful desires. And without a fear of God, this would be a very dangerous place. But what fear of God did Abraham have? He's speaking so, hypo- so hypocritically here. This place has no fear of God. But I'll lie I will lie in the presence of my saving God. But you're the problem, pagan Philistines. The theme of this passage continues. Our our unfaithfulness on full display, yet God's faithfulness to his promises are on full display as well. Abraham, despite all that he had been through with God, with all the promises that were still pending, that, that were coming, the child, nevertheless, he was scared for his life and chose to lie and manipulate and scheme to keep himself alive. Because in this moment, he doesn't trust God to do that for him. Arthur Pink has a great observation about this interchange, this, this, epi- this discussion here between Abraham and Abimelech and the story on the whole. Listen to what he says, because I think it's very practically relevant for us. Abraham did but illustrate what is all too sadly common among the Lord's people that which might be termed the inconsistency of faith. How often those who are not afraid to trust God with their souls are afraid to trust him with regard to their bodies. How often those who have the full assurance of faith in regard to eternal things are full of unbelief and fear when it comes to temporal things. We have believed in the Lord, and it has been counted unto us for righteousness, Pink writes. Yet how often, like Abraham, In the matter of the practical concerns of our daily life, we too have more confidence in our own wisdom, in our own scheming, than we have in the sufficiency of God. Abraham trusted God for his eternity, but not his immediate well-being. Abraham looked to the heavenly Canaan. He was looking for an eternal city, a city whose founder was God. But he was fearful of moving to Gerar. Do you find yourself genuinely believing in God's big promises, his ultimate promise of salvation in Christ, but struggling day to day 
with anxiety about relatively, I say relatively, I don't mean they're not real, but relatively little things. Abraham did too. And now we get a very honest confession about Abraham's struggle with faith. Um, What he says, it's clumsy, it's kind of pathetic, but it's honest. Abraham said in verse 11, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, notice what he says next. And I read it this way because I think it's the way it's meant to be, meant to be heard. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. That's spinning. Spinning is lying. And that's exactly what he does. There may be a technical truth there. This is pre-Mosaic law code and such in antiquity. But marriage is the, is the overriding primary relationship, and it's sacred, and is to be noted and announced in such times. They are one flesh. They are married. That has to be the state. That's what should be protected when they go to a new place. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, okay, now hold up. Look at verse 13 closely. Now we get to it. And this could not be more practical, so pay as close attention as you can. Because here's the principle. You may be a believer. Maybe you've been a believer a long time. But there's a chance, there's a likelihood, there's some feature of your life that may be private between you and God that you have not given to him. You are a believer. But early on, at some point, whenever it was, you thought, I can't give up that, or this is always going to be me, or I'm this way, or I can't help this, and I'm just going to hold on to this. And you think that will not come back some way. Now look at verse 13. He's recalling for Abimelech how he came to know God and how this story about Sarah being his sister came. When God caused me to wander from my father's house. Now notice, he didn't say when God called me unto the promised land. Now because he's in trouble with this lie he is told, he's in essence saying God called me to a hard thing. It was a very difficult thing. I, th- I, this, I made a choice to do this. If God's going to call me to this hard thing, I'm going to hold on to this. I mean, I can't do everything he's saying just the way he's saying it. Again, verse 13. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, God did this to me. He made me leave. I said to Sarah, okay, this you're going to have to do. Whenever we get somewhere new, you've got to say that you're my sister and I'm your brother. The only way we're going to survive this. Now, we didn't know this back before. This is a revelation. This helps us understand why he did what he did with Pharaoh. He had had this seed of sin hidden in his heart, and it it comes up when pressure is on. And that's true for whatever it is for you or for me. When the pressure is on, it'll come up. And then it, it usually blows up, and it causes all sorts of pain and suffering for everybody involved. But we see this commitment made by Abraham and Sarah to lie about this, this sacred relationship in order to navigate what God was calling them. In other words, God didn't have that figured into his plan. Whatever he thought, I'm going to speak this way. I'm going to talk this way. So he's being misleading and he's lying and he's deceiving all the way through with this particular line that he gives. What what a practical point for us all. Whatever it is, brother, sister, whatever it is that you know You've got to give over to God. It could be a secret sin of some sort. It could be something that just, it get, that for whatever reason, it's acceptable 
you know it's sin or you know it's holding on to something, the longer you hold on to it, the more likelihood it will blow up and have its effect. We see it unfold in Abraham's life here, full display. Now, despite this unfaithfulness of Abraham, God is faithful to his promise. The response of Abimelech shows it. Verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. He wants to protect her honor before everyone. And protect knowledge that this, the, this, the baby who would be born, that they're still not believing God for, is Abraham and Sarah's child, just as God had promised. You know, there's no aspect of this story that would lead us to believe that Abraham should escape unscathed, let alone with manifold rewards as he goes. This is an unadulterated picture of God's undeserved favor when punishment is actually merited. That's grace, and that's what we receive through Christ. Then, verse 17, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abraham and his God are made known in Canaan as a result of this, which will pave the way for Israel's eventual expansion. But there is no verse in this section that speaks to God's faithfulness in the face of our unfaithfulness more than chapter 21, the first couple verses. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, as he had promised as he had vowed. And the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. So many practical implications of this passage before us. Abraham gave so many reasons to God that would have justified God withdrawing his promises to cut off Abraham, but God did not do so. Paul wrote many years later, 2,000 years later, to a pastor named Timothy. And he said, Timothy, he says to us, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Abraham's life is a show of God's faithfulness when we are unfaithful. If we ever doubted the covenant to be one-sided, like that ceremony of going through the, the split animals, just God going through it on our behalf. If we ever doubted that it was a one-sided endeavor for our eternal security, this episode should erase that doubt. It's like Candlish said in his commentary, Deliverance and divine faithfulness are the true story of our lives as the followers of Christ. We're not the story of our lives. 
He's the story of our life. Once again, deliverance and divine faithfulness are the true story of our lives as the followers of Christ. It's such that our faults become the occasions for God to show his faithful character, so all the praise goes to him. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm communicating or the Bible is communicating. It's not saying you can go on sinning so that grace may abound. No, may it never be. But when we recognize the fullness of the grace that is ours, that will have the effect of taming our sinful hearts. That's where we actually can see victory over sin is when we fully acknowledge who's the worker of all this. And this story reminds us who the worker of it all is. And your life reminds us. It reminds you of who the worker of all this is. He will not forsake us in his promise that he has made, though we continually forsake him. Abraham gave many, many good reasons for God to withdraw his promise, but God did not do so. Sometime in the early 1400s, a Jewish rabbi named Daniel ben Judah wrote a hymn, a song, a Jewish Hebrew song called the Yigdal. It was a traditional Hebrew song and it added verses over the years. It had up to 15 verses at one time, which is typical of those kinds of songs. At some point in the late 1700s, a Christian writer got hold of that and wove Christ throughout the same song to try to emphasize Jesus as the fulfillment. And the song is one we sing often here. It's the God of Abraham praise. And that song is meant to point our attention to the God of Abraham who ultimately fulfills his promise in Christ. And it's on his oath that we are dependent for our salvation. And that gives us great hope because he keeps his oath. It's not your oath that we depend on or my oath that we depend on. It's his oath that saves us. This is what assures our salvation. Two of the verses that are worth noting, the third verse and the fourth verse in the version we sing, it said, he by himself has sworn, I on his oath depend. I shall on eagle's wings aborn to heaven ascend. I shall behold his face, I shall his power adore, and sing the wonders of his grace forevermore. And then verse 4 shifts to that long-term vision we should have of the big ultimate promise. The goodly land I see, with peace and plenty blessed, a land of sacred liberty and endless rest. There milk and honey flow, and oil and wine abound, and trees of life forever grow with mercy crown. Look to that future certainty that will help us with the practical issues of day to day and know that ultimately your salvation is dependent on whether you do that just right. Your, your salvation depends on his oath to save in Christ. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In fact, we are so unfaithful, when we do exercise faith, we have to know the origin of that faith must be him. We on his oath depend. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your grace and mercy to us in Christ. While we are so often faithless, you always remain faithful. For you never deny yourself and your promises through Christ. Now, O Lord, for any among us, who might be convicted of sin and in doubt of your love, please remind us of the all-sufficient grace that you have given us through the perfect work of Jesus on our behalf, the finished work of Christ for us. Refresh us with assurance of salvation because it is based on your oath 
your promise in the fulfillment of that promise in Christ, not on our merit or our faithfulness. O Lord, even in the inconsistency of our faith, your grace is made known. Thank you, O Lord, through Christ I pray. Amen. Let's turn to that hymn I just referenced.